Hello and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor, and for more than seven years, over 300 interviews, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. Today we're speaking with Tom Eagles about the James Samuel film, The Harder They Fall, which is available on Netflix. I last spoke to Tom about winning the 2020 Ace Eddie Award for Best Edited Feature Film for his work on Jojo Rabbit. That film was also nominated for a BAFTA and an Oscar. Tom has also edited films like Hunt for the Wilder People and TV series like What We Do in the Shadows, Ash vs. the Evil Dead, and Spartacus Blood and Sand. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. The visual grammar of the film felt very Western. Can you talk about that and how you either tried to exploit that or amp it up? No, I agree with that 100%. I always struggle a little bit with research. Like I don't I don't know how useful it is for an editor sometimes to get deep into research. But I did watch a lot of Westerns going a ways back. I think for this movie, you know, the, starting from the color Westerns, the kind of big, West, big sky Westerns were influential and definitely the new Westerns and the Italian so-called spaghetti Westerns. And so I guess I just osmose that over a period of time leading up to cutting the film and whilst cutting the film and so when I would get one of those shots you know like a Leone style super close up it it made sense to me I was kind of familiar with the grammar I think probably pacing was something that we took from from the older westerns and you know learning to be patient when building tension and and having to hold off you know the expectations of a lot of contemporary cinema goers who wanted things to be fast it needs a little time to gestate you definitely did that and one of the places i thought was kind of interesting i felt that gunslinger energy was the first time stagecoach mary sees the lead character not to give the whole thing away they see each other and there are these close-ups on the eyes and there's this tension and you feel that, like, what's going to happen? Those are kind of interesting because I think those are a little bit influenced by COVID issues as well. That bar, we couldn't pack that bar out the way that James wanted to. You know, we did lay, later go back and populate some wide shots and put some people into them. But in that first pass, they had to figure out a way to shoot it that didn't reveal that the room was completely empty. So I got the dailies and there are all these tights and I thought, well... First of all, those those close-ups on objects, you know, beer glass going down or shattering or, you know, cards going down on a table, wonderful punctuation points to the music. But then, like you said, there, there are these beautiful, extreme close-ups on Nat and Mary's eyes and lips. So I, I decided to play those later in the second half of the scene. Once she spotted them, they have this whole exchange from across the room without speaking. And it's kind of the most, it's almost more intimate than when they start making out in the next scene. So it was kind of an interesting thing to make a really intimate scene from across a a crowded room. But that was partly one of a few times that we were challenged by and ultimately blessed by what COVID threw at us. One of the other pacing places that I'd love for you to talk about is the scene with the train before it stops. That whole thing is just classic Western building tension and, and the pacing of all of that is fantastic. Can you talk about cutting that scene? Yeah, that was that was interesting. I mean, as soon as I got the dailies for that, I kind of had quite a specific idea of how I wanted it to play. And a lot of it had to do with sound. You know, when we cut to the train, it's this huge slavering mechanical beast that's making a lot of noise. And when we cut to Trudy, Regina King's character, she's completely still. And there's a little bit of distant train and distant wind until they 
you know, come into the same frame. So I drove the assistants a little bit crazy trying to find all the right sounds to, to tempt that. But when we finally got into our sound designer, Richard King's hands, that was when it really started to, to sing. The, the train is hyperkinetic and she is very still. So that, I mean, that was just a pleasure to cut that sequence. I didn't feel like that there was a lot of score. Was there classic score in the film? I can't even remember. There is, yeah. And the remarkable thing about this film is that our director is also our composer. So that was a really unusual collaboration for me and, and very exciting to be able to see that process from start to finish. He wrote a bunch of songs. There are a couple of needle drops. The script was filled with all these kind of reggae and dub needle drops initially. And there's a great musicality to the dialogue as well. So I think with James, he doesn't really distinguish between music and dialogue and sound effects. It's all just one big opera. It was a constant kind of interplay and a constant dance between music and, and picture to try and find the right kind of symphony of all of those elements. But as you said, those music choices were actually written in, correct? Sometimes they were written in, but often they didn't exist yet. So that song in the bar that Mary sings, that he wrote into the scripts, you know, the old spiritual, the Jim Crow count. And I spent forever trying to find the old spiritual, the Jim Crow count, but it turned out to be an original that he just hadn't written. And so there's a real swagger to it that I really love. So it was just a, a joy to work with that music. The Promised Land was one of those pieces of music where I felt like you were editing to the music. You know, you could see where a cut would happen or where a gunshot would go and they were to the beat. So often it was a lot of re-editing. I would cut things to the music and then the story would change. Things would have to change and then I would have to kind of tweak things to, to get them to fall in rhythm. But something like that, it's all about the swagger. So they had to be on beat. You know, it would, would feel weird to me for them not to. You know, anytime there's there's an obvious visual rhythm, it felt like it should be tied to the musical rhythm. I noticed a contracted point where the gang is coming up on their horses to a building and they don't even get to the building. They certainly don't get off their horses. And the next thing you know is coming through the door. It cuts without showing them get off their horses, without showing them walking up to the door, nothing. Why do that? I think as an editor, you're always looking for those opportunities because you're usually starting out with something insanely long. When we were assembling, James encouraged me to go even longer, you know, much longer than what you see in the finished cut of the movie. And so we've kind of done all the swagger and the menace of them coming into town. What's the next interesting thing in a, in a way is them coming through the door into the bank. If you're given some kind of kinetic endpoint, you can sometimes fudge that and... <laughs> and remove time. Do you remember how long the first assembly was? Somewhere slightly over three hours. I think it wasn't crazy. And certainly the first thing I showed James was probably even shorter than that because he was quite happy for me to cut certain scenes. We'd talked in advance about scenes that really weren't helping us and, and also weren't good scenes. The first cuts are the easiest. The second layer of cuts are the <laughs> harder sometimes. Talk to me a little bit about you'd be following Stagecoach Mary in her fight, and then you'd follow Idris Elba in, in his fight, and you'd follow somebody else. I'm sure those weren't scripted exactly as they ended up in the final film. No, not at all. That end battle sequence was crazy. It was coming in in dribs and drabs all throughout the shooting. Shots by main unit, shots by second unit. Things were divided up by cast availability. And there wasn't a very strict dogma about what had to go where. There was there was a script, obviously, but 
James was very happy for me to move things around and try and find the right rhythm and balance. It was often just a kind of emotional call. You know, there's a period of that fight that's very fun. And and the kind of the backbone of that is uh, Zazie Beats Regina King fight, which is kind of a fun thing to watch because it's it's been boiling for a while between the two of them. But there were also all these emotional beats and it didn't really work to intercut those. So we had to kind of rearrange things and backload all, all of the emotional beats towards the end of that sequence to keep all of the characters on the same page emotionally, even though they're in different parts of the town doing different things. So I think sometimes we fiddled with logic a little bit as well. I think in the first cut, we had Nat standing around for a very long time while everyone was shooting each other and Cherokee Bill standing right in front of him and neither of them shot each other. So it, it just didn't make logical sense for that to happen. So we had to move things around a little bit. There's some really nice match cuts of either somebody getting punched or getting hit and it matches to something else. And one of the ones that I can remember in the final thing was a, a match cut that was literally a match. <laughs> <laughs> the match cut, yeah. I mean, that that's, that was fun. For some reason, James credits me with that cut, but I, I can't imagine how else you would cut it. I don't know if I moved things around there, but those were the shots. Someone likes a match, someone else likes a fuse. And it just sort of felt like a nice little nod to Lawrence Arabia as well. I but, was going to say the same thing. It's a nod to Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> match cut there. Maybe, ours is maybe not quite as spectacular. It's mid-strike, so we couldn't stop and do a sunrise or anything. We had this very stylized sequence when the characters were gearing up and getting ready to go to battle where they're just staring into the camera and it's cut to this beautiful piece of music and it's quite long <laughs> and we loved it it was one of our favorite scenes but it was a bit of a repeated beat because we already had nat singing into the camera and then we already had the marshal riding into town and then nat riding into town and, and so we already had kind of sense of anticipation so the sequence just had to come out and the silver lining was when we took it out nat is singing the last line of his song is in a distant view and we cut to a distant view down a rifle scope to the marshal riding into town and that was just good luck you know we did that we cut it out and kind of went oh that that works that's lovely did you have things where you noticed where structural things had to be changed and you got those happy accidents in the structural changes? I mean, usually it's the other way around. You, you have really nice scene transitions and then you restructure things and it all falls apart <laughs> and you're banging your head against the wall. So we did do, I mean, we didn't do major, major restructuring. We did a lot of thinning. As scripted through the opening of the movie, there was a lot of intercutting between the gangs and you didn't really know who was who. Each of the gangs were not together. So you were going from Idris Elba to Regina King to Jonathan Majors and it was a little bit hard to track. We kind of pulled back on the Buck Gang through the opening of the movie and tried to get the so-called good guys established. And one of the happy results of that was we were able to give each character a really good entrance. And again, through the middle of the movie, there was a lot of positioning and exposition, and there was a lot of intercutting and actually consolidated a lot of those storylines so that we didn't keep flopping back and forth between the two gangs. I've talked to people about the social intelligence that it takes to be an editor and to know that maybe you know something early on in the process, but that you just feel this scene needs to go, but you don't immediately say it because you know there's a process that you're going to go through and maybe that it's better that the director says that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with a film like this, James had been working on for close to 10 years. I, I mean, I did give him those notes. So I fed back on the script, but he's robust enough that he, he's quite happy to ignore me. So he went and shot all those scenes anyway. You know, it wasn't going to chip his confidence, but some directors, you have to be a little bit careful that you don't taint the relationship or that you tip your hat towards you know sometimes i think it feels to them like oh well you've you've 
you've always wanted to get rid of that scene. Or you've always had a agenda. You do have to do it with them. And I think he was really good about some of those things that had to come out. He knew that were painful. I knew they were painful. And I just had to be patient because I knew that he would see the benefits of, of doing some of those things over time. But then equally, I could be wrong about some things. You know, there can be reasons other than story reasons why a scene or sequence has to stay in the movie. We found with this movie that the axis of style versus substance wasn't really true for us. The style is part of the substance of the movie. And if you take the style out, you sort of take some of the soul out of the movie. So I think for both of us, it was a, a learning experience. And it just it does kind of have to be done together. This is a new director for you, correct? That's right, yeah. Tell me a little bit about learning somebody's method of working. How do you start to try to develop that relationship? What lets the director know you're on his side and, and that you've got his back? Back and that he's safe with you. I think you just have to demonstrate that. At the end of the day, it's not my movie. As as much as I've put my heart and soul into it, it's always going to be his movie, and he has to be happy. And and so I make it clear from the get go that I, any ideas I come up with are just my two cents. They're just advice. I think it's really important to have a safe space to do that it's important to have kind of private time with your director it, things go badly if you know producers or studios decide to get involved too early or if the director comes with an entourage that can be tricky you want the space to be fully honest so you can say to each other well i think this sucks what are we going to do about it you know with james i got lucky i wound up cutting the film through the shoot period i, I cut the film from back in Aotearoa, where I'm from, because we were mid-COVID. I had gone out to Santa Fe and we were just about to shoot the first scene and we shut down. So I went back to New Zealand. I did a couple of other projects remote and I sort of thought that the film had gone away. I thought it might not happen. Uh, and then we started up again in September of 2020. Because we were doing a long distance collaboration, I made sure that I made myself available. I staggered my week so that I think I was working something like Wednesday to Sunday so that I was available to James on the weekends and, and we wound up having probably more interaction than I've ever had with the director during the shoot as a result then we would just kind of hang out and talk about the movie and talk about movies in general I mean he's a great storyteller so all I had to do really was listen and in a way that's your role as an editor you're the first audience for the movie so if you can show that you're listening and you're not coming in hard with all of your ideas up front but by the same token we were we were just lucky i think that we were on the same page creatively when you have a director who is also the writer and as you already pointed out he's also the composer what are some of the benefits and what are some of the challenges of having a writer who is wearing a lot of hats i find that writer directors are usually more pragmatic and more adaptable and flexible than just writers. And sometimes folks that are just directors because they feel like they have to protect this, the script that they were given that they fell in love with. I love it when there's one person wearing all the hats because there's only one person that I have to convince. If I want to change something, you know, I've had the experience on TV shows where I want to change something and it's like turning an ocean line to get everyone to agree to it. I love it when I have one person because there's a single point of view and I can say, look, I had this idea. Do you like it or not like it? And either way, we can move on. It's very simple. The director-composer thing was new to me and was very interesting. There was sometimes, I think, a tension between director James and composer James. Director James loved when I put temp music on because it would make the scenes better. Composer James sometimes felt like, shit, I've got, you know, either I've got the wrong idea, the wrong sound in my head now, or it's the right idea, but it's a lot to live up with. You know, it was it was a bit of a challenge for him. So I always gave him the option, actually, because he kind of liked both. So I would do all of the sound and music work 
and then we'd also give him a version without music. So the composer held a lot more sway than the composer normally would. So there were some, some tunes that I knew, oh, well, this tune has got to be in the movie. Like, you know, I've got to figure out a way to make it work. I'm not going to be able to say to him, this is not happening. So that was a, an interesting process. It was definitely fascinating for me to watch the scoring and, and especially the songwriting process from the get-go. You know? When you were getting ready to edit this movie, was it a different experience, like trying to find temp music? What, what was that like for your temp? It was really tough because I didn't have a lot of music. You know, he hadn't written most of it, but he definitely had strong opinions about the music that I, that I was going to temp with. You know, certainly he knew what he didn't like. And a lot of the things that you might classically lean towards, if you look at the way the film is shot, you might lean towards a, a lot of Morricone, but he didn't he didn't really like that not that he doesn't like Morricone, he just didn't, didn't like it against the, the movie the sound that we were going for was this kind of synthesis of classic western like an alma bernstein kind of magnificent seven level classic with dub music and that doesn't exist anywhere on earth you know there wasn't like a temp library that i could pull that stuff from so i worked very hard on trying to find little bits and pieces instrumentals little dub accents you know uh, the melodica was a, was a fun instrument for me to, to play with but it was really eclectic like in terms of what i found that worked i found a couple of felicuti tunes that have been covered by acoustic ensembles and i found kind of cello cover of a Jimi hendrix song that he liked you know so it, it was difficult and time consuming and i was begging for a music editor and i eventually got a great music editor like clint bennett but not until we were into director cuts one of the things that I talked to Tom Cross and Elliot Graham, he said something really interesting in that interview, which was that the production designer and the editor are so tied that the editing is influenced by the production design. And I kind of thought about that with your film, with scenes like that White Town and Redwood City. Yeah, I mean, those, those are good examples. White Town is, is the one joke that I added to the movie. Um, I had no idea that they were going to do that. I had no idea. James kept telling me, you've got to see Maysville. You've got to see Maysville. And I had, wasn't in the script, but he had planned for the town to be literally all white, including white horses and everything. It was a big job and it happened really last minute for them to paint the whole town white. All of the decisions, whether it be um, production design or camera, they were making big swings. And the whole thing had a very graphic and bold feeling. So when it came time to do things like Chirons that would typically lower third, you know, kind of here we are in Redwood City, it just felt like it wanted something a, a lot bolder. So I think all of those things influence you sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly sometimes it's just over the process of watching the dailies for three months you kind of get into the rhythm and the vibe of the film but certainly production design in this movie i think is beautiful what is your process when you're in dailies when you walk in to new dailies for a new scene that you've never seen before how do you have your assistants prepare that and what do you do to get a handle on the scene before you make the first cut you know usually i try and watch everything before i start cutting but there's sometimes a point comes where you think you know what the sequence is and you kind of need to start organizing your thoughts as i watch material i'm throwing things into a sequence it's kind of a select reel it's roughly in order and i guess i'm looking for the kind of fulcrums in the scene so i'm looking for the pressure points in the script but i'm also looking for what's interesting in the material so what's what's interesting shot wise and also what's interesting performance wise and they're not always the same thing once you find those kind of nuggets 
you have something to build your scene around. Sometimes I'll make odd choices at that point and then try and reverse engineer the scene to fit and to work around that strange choice. You know, if there's a great performance in an odd frame, I'll try and make it work. It's just a process. By going through that process, you find out what the scene's about. And when you're watching dailies or rushes, are you watching from individual setups in a bin or do you string them out into a longer like Kemroll type thing? I do both, which is terrible. I'm very cruel to my assistant, but a wonderful assisting on that's led by John Sosnowski. I kind of needed another assistant because we were getting so much material. And because I was asking a lot of them, I asked them to script sync as well. And I also kind of needed a music editor. And as a compromise, Netflix gave me another assistant editor who was good with music. He helped out through the shoot period as well. I've soaked up various different methodologies from various different editors that I've worked with and I've wound up kind of liking them all. So I have all the shots laid out in, a, in grid view. So I like, I'd like to see them visually. And if they're two cameras, I have them grouped together and then the group clip below. And and then I also have them do like a game roll type thing. And then I also have scripts there. So it is a lot that I ask of my assistants, but it makes my process a lot more efficient. I do try and use the game roll or scene sequence to stop me from doing too much. So sometimes I'll try and sit back on the couch. I have a remote keyboard as well, a Bluetooth keyboard, and I'll just throw on locators because the temptation is to either start cutting straight away or to get a little bit too carried away and classifying material. I have more confidence nowadays that I'll be able to find stuff. I mean, I started out in busting around television, so you just had to be decisive and quick. But now I know that I will get another chance to go back and that my objectives will probably change when I do go back. So I'm throughout the cutting of the movie always going back to that material and watching it anew, knowing that I'm looking for different things or I've learned something different about a character. I'm not so tough on myself the first time around. So I don't really start cutting until I have an idea of what I want to do with the scene. But I try not to be too rigid about it, you know, like halfway through the cutting might decide that my idea is rubbish and, and I have to throw it out. I think there's an OCD kind of side of me that wants to watch everything. And I think also it comes from having done a lot of improv and a lot of comedy. And so literally every take is, is different with those. And we did actually have a lot of improv in this film, oddly enough. You wouldn't think it. a lot of stuff was improv. So it kind of felt like I had to see everything. The last thing on that is I sort of feel a responsibility to be a fresh set of eyes. So the circle takes for me are kind of a little bit irrelevant. Like I, I like to watch everything. I have this kind of hubris that I, I think I'll have a better idea. So <laughs> I like to watch it all. So many directors will say, oh, that was my circle take. And then once they're in the comfort of the edit suite, they look at their choices and they're like, why did I ever think that was the best take? Why did I circle that one? And that's the director. Yeah, yeah. But they have a, they have something that they're going for. And it's a bit of a journey usually for them to figure out, that, you know, sometimes, yes, what you're going for is the right thing. Other times you might spend 20 takes going for something and get it and then decide later well that's not what i want sometimes an editor can be helpful with that process you know from, from a fresh perspective this is what i think works absolutely tom thank you so much for a really interesting discussion of this movie and i hope everybody gets a chance to watch it it's it's very entertaining yeah we'll do thank you see ya that's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are also available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're supported with great visual content, images, video clips, and more. It's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. 
And be on the lookout for our very special first video podcast of Art of the Cut with Joe Walker, ACE, the editor of Dune. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to my guest, Tom Eagles, ACE. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss out on all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And remember that if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io. 